Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 50th blockbuster episode of MGG Fast Finance, the podcast that already went ahead and built a better magic online out of an old Etch-A-Sketch. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, everyone. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some great information, uh, hopefully profitable with all of you today. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All right, so what do we have on the agenda this week? All right, well, this week we have a show in three segments. Segment one is our top movers. We've got a pretty healthy list this week. Going to look at all the cards that have moved the most in price over the last week or so. Segment two is our cards to watch. This is where James and I are going to review the cards that we think will be increasing in price over time. And segment three will be our topic of the week. We're going to look at the uh, Making Moves article that showed up over on Wizards' uh, website this week, um, <clears throat> outlining some of their uh, general plans for the Magic Online platform. Uh, so let's start on segment one, our top movers. Jumping in uh, at the start of the week at a 76% gain is Coalition Relic from both Future Sight and uh, the Dual Decks New Phyrexia versus the Coalition. Uh, started the week at around $10 and has a finished at around $18. Uh, I'm looking on TCG Player and it looks like the cheapest, not, there's only one, wow, only one near mint non foil copy at $20. Um, I did sell an LP copy earlier this week for like 14 bucks. So there's certainly some amount of demand there. Uh, and I'm pretty sure this is all chalked up to Commander 2016 four color decks coalition relic fits very well in there not to mention i mean with a deck like atraxa it's just unreal yeah i mean the universal appeal of a uh, three mana artifact that can make any color of mana and potentially make two on a key turn um is an important card just like chromatic lantern is and um Part of the reason that you, when you build the time machine, you should go back and get future sight before you buy anything else. Yeah. Did you, uh, it's, re- it's just so disgusting with Atraxa though. If you proliferate a couple times a turn, suddenly that thing's starting your turn off with like four mana. Yeah. That is, <laughs> yes, that that's is a nice interaction. Silly. Yeah. It's um, nice. Yeah. All right. What's next for us? All right, so we got Surgical Extraction on the move out of New Phyrexia. The foils in particular have made a move from about $20 to about $40 for about $100, 100% gain. Um, relatively low supply and a card that's become increasingly important in battling uh, metagames that include um, decks like Dredge, where getting rid of uh, key uh, components of the deck is important, or emptying key cards out of graveyards. Also sometimes useful against decks like Tron, um, where if, if you can Ghost Quarter or Tectonic Edge, the first of their Tron lands that you manage to kill, sometimes you can get the rest of them out of play and, and shut down their mana production. Okay. Um... Yeah, th- I've also seen some people floating Surgical Extraction as a replacement for uh, Getaxian Probe and Infect. Yep. 
Uh, uh, and, and, and also, actually, Death Shadow um, might want it more um, because they they just want to lose the life almost no matter what. And if it's got incidental damage against decks they intend to face, then that's you know that might be a, a sufficient trade off to the can tripping of uh, Probe. Yeah, well, you know, I won't speak to Death Shadow, but uh, if you're playing, in fact, do not replace Gitaxian Probe with Surgical Extraction. Just don't, don't, don't do that. Um, all right, next up is Memory Jar from Urza's Legacy. We are looking at the foil copies specifically. Started the week at uh, 33, finishing the week at 75. This is for those of you who uh, don't remember is, uh, oh, crud, what's the word I'm looking for? Reserved? Um, yes, some reserved list. <laughs> yeah, so this is a foil reserve card, which there are not many of. Uh, cheapest Nearmint copy of 76, market price still about 45. So uh, a little bit of a movement, I think. Um, this is not a card, you know, th- this is a card that's going to be in perpetually low supply, so we're always going to see not much to shift the price. It, this card's not banned in Commander. Uh, let me double check, but I don't think so. Uh, nope. It is legal in Commander. Amazing. Um, in case you've never played with or against this card, a Memory Jar is one of the most broken cards in Magic's history. Um, the the ability to basically utilize two full hands worth of cards in a single turn is not to be underestimated. It is. Uh, it is far from fair. Let's go with that. Yep. Um, uh, another gentleman who I encounter uh, in Magic Finance circles owns, I think he said 1% of all FTV copies of this card. So if you ever see the, the FTV copy rise in price, you'll know somebody out there is quite pleased with that. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm curious as to how he came to that calculation and the math involved, but uh, I believe that doing so is in fact feasible. Yeah, I didn't I didn't dig into it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, so next on our list is... Uh, Oh, wait, no, you did. Oh, whatever, I'll do it. It's Goblin Welder from uh, the Commander 2015 copies specifically um, is what jumped this week. Looks like it went from 175 to 5. Um, so uh, a pretty good jump, about 180%. This is almost certainly on the back of Brea. Um, Goblin Welder is possibly the best card that costs one red mana that interacts with artifacts, uh, unless I'm overlooking something silly uh is just ludicrously powerful recycles artifacts very easily especially when the artifact in question brings back tokens so if you have like you can kill a mirror token to bring back a mirror battle sphere and then uh the battle sphere makes more tokens and then you can sacrifice a battle sphere to gain some effect and then swap it back with a welder and all sorts of silly stuff so the price on this has jumped up to about five bucks for the um for the c15 copies uh, market price is a little over $3 already, and I think the Urza's Legacy ones are still in that range, so I would expect this to be a pretty sticky price. Do commanders go to the graveyard before they go back to the command zone? You choose where to put them. When a commander would leave the battlefield, you can either let it go to the zone that it would go to or return it to your hand. Yeah, so that's pretty gross, because Brea goes to your graveyard, you can just slap her right back into play with the welder by swapping one of the tokens that she left behind the first time. Correct, correct. The, you know, of course, yeah, there's there's the risk that somebody eats your grave. Well, there used to be the risk that like somebody would like tuck it or something, like do sure. something to your graveyard to get rid of the commander and then you'd be boned. But now the rules change that if the commander basically would ever go to your library, you can instead put it into exile. It's It's very safe to dump your commanders in your graveyard. That's pretty sweet. That would explain why the Brea is indeed the top uh, commander on EDH rec. 
um, associated with Goblin Welder, who appears in over 3,000 decks on that site, and 600 of them are Brea. The other 600 are Duretti Scraps Avant, who is also uh, in the market for a cheap uh, uh, a 1-1 that can swap artifacts at will. Yeah, I really liked Duretti. Uh, I was getting pretty interested in picking copies of that card up right up until it was uh, reprinted in Brea, so kind of waiting on that now, but that could definitely come... Uh, to fruition down the road, maybe another year or so. Yep. Uh, All right, so next on the list we've got, with the banning of Golgari Grave Troll, um, dredge decks are suddenly in the market for something else that can dredge a bunch of cards, and Golgari Thug, the uncommon out of Ravnica and also in a dual deck, um, has moved from just under $3 to about $8 for about almost a 200% gain um, on the backs of people picking up playsets of this, thinking that they're going to need to repair their injured uh, dredge decks to keep playing with them in modern. Yeah, um, it's funny be- that this happened because I don't think that the increase in dredge's playability had anything to do with Golgari Grave Troll. It was completely Cathartic Reunion and some of those other cards Cathartic Reunion and Prize Amalgam, I think, were the real triggers for Dredge's success. So uh, I don't think that this is going to do much to keep Dredge off of the radar. I mean, you're going from Dredge 6 to Dredge 5. That doesn't seem like really backbreaking. Golgari Thug is Dredge 4, isn't it? Oh, it's 4. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought Stinkweed Imp is the 5, but Stinkweed Imp is a common. What are they already playing for, Stinkweed Imp? Yeah, Stinkweed Imp is five. Um, Troll was six, and this is four. So, I mean, they're, okay. they're definitely losing some some capability there. There's also a big difference between trying to kill somebody with a 1-1 one, one and killing them with a giant Grave Troll in a pinch, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we'll, it remains to be proven whether or not Dredge still has game. I suspect that Grave Troll isn't enough to, to fully kill it. Um, and this is certainly one of those moments where I get jealous of the bulk guys who go, what? Golgari Thug, an uncommon from Ravnica that I have hundreds of in my bulk boxes, is suddenly worth $7. Well, happy birthday to me. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that Golgari Thug was still like $3, prior to this. So I don't know if anyone was sitting on hundreds of them because you would have just been selling them, like selling playsets on eBay or TCG or something. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, it didn't take very long for the inventory to drain off on TCG. It's relatively low, so... Yeah, yeah. I guess they, uh, it might take some time for them to be rescued from bulk boxes. Yep. Uh, okay, so next up we have uh, Rainbow Veil from Fallen Empires. Uh, that's a set you are not going to hear us say very often. It's <laughs> <laughs> a dollar and a quarter. Started at a dollar and a quarter. It's up to like four right now. Um, for like a two hundred and some odd percent gain. I I I, I don't know. I heard it has to do with pack wars, like people buy it and use it in a pack war format of some sort. Yeah, Sig over at QS was talking about it on Twitter this week, saying that at uh, Grand Prix Louisville, people were playing pack wars where they used the rainbow veils as stand-in mana um, uh, to try to kind of resolve some of the like mana management issues that have been associated with the pack wars format in the past. Um, the problem with all of that is that the the format is self-limiting because as if it relies on Rainbow Veil, then the available supply of Rainbow Veils um, at a cheap price will dictate how many how interested people are in the format. So the higher this card goes, the less people will play the format and the less valuable Rainbow Veil will be because it's not played anywhere else. So um, none of that leads me to do anything other than have gone and retrieved the two play sets that I had sitting around in the Super Collection and immediately put them up for sale. 
You know, it's funny about that is the exact same argument could be made about legacy. <laughs> like it's self-limiting because of the card availability, right? Like, well, and that's the argument, the, largely the argument I've been making against legacy for ages. So the, yeah, yeah. And the, the same theories all apply. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, okay. You can, you can take the next one for us. Um, yeah. So Lux Cannon, uh, the artifact that allows you to just eradicate uh, permanence of your choice once it gets enough counters on it, has jumped from a dollar twenty-five to four dollars on, uh, or sorry, from five dollars to almost twenty dollars for about a two hundred and forty percent gain. I'm assuming on the back of a Traxa, who uh, in a deck that is focused on proliferating counters on permanence, um, can make the Lux Cannon go off uh, more and more often. This was the foils in particular that were showing the movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm finding hard to believe that there could be any reason other than uh, Atraxa for this one. I mean, Brea too, I guess, but although Brea is you know, not going to be quick at putting counters on it. There's 236 decks, Atraxa decks running it on EDH rec. Uh, I guess Vorel of the Hullclade and Derevi also run it, but it looks like it's mostly about Atraxa. Yeah, that would make sense. Because, you know, if you can get, th- trigger, get three proliferates off in a turn, that means you're getting... Uh, destroy a permanent every rotation yeah that's pretty sweet that's pretty good all right next on the list yeah that'll be uh sulfurous springs we were looking specifically at the foil copy from ninth edition um that one jumped from nine to 40 supposedly uh i'm checking tcg and i actually don't see any foil any near mint foil copies uh let's see the cheapest foil copy there's one lp foil at 77 dollars yeah, and good luck with that um so this is just a case of extremely low supply there was probably two foil ninth edition copies on here uh do you see the prices for like the 10th or 9th or 8th yeah, or anything for 10th okay. there's only a couple copies as well they're at 32 dollars a piece yeah so I, I it looks like there was probably what a couple of play sets at most on the internet you know last week and somebody picked up a couple of them and intentionally or unintentionally raise the price i don't know well i mean the the process of foils for the painlands um going stratospheric has been ongoing since they were first revealed to be important and useful in eldrazi decks last year during eldrazi winter um and since that point they've been draining off uh and at at this point one of the things that's that's relevant here is that (laughs) though these that particular uh set of five painlands has been reprinted numerous times they don't have that many foils um, they were printed in 5th, 6th, 7th, uh, a Deckmaster's edition, Ice Age, which didn't have foils, and then ninth uh, and 10th. So the 7th foils are especially expensive because 7th foils are sought after for being black-bordered foils in a white-bordered set. Um, and then ninth and 10th would have been like the next series of targets. Um, and these would get played in you know EDH decks as well as uh, being important to collectors trying to complete sets. So... Uh, not something that you're likely to be able to capitalize on at ever-increasing plateaus, but if you just so happen to have a foil of some of these painlands sitting around in some of your EDH decks or something, you might want to yank them out and trade them into stuff you need. Yeah, especially because you know we saw the other set of painlands printed um, in Standard uh, like twice, I think. Um, might have even been three times. So clearly Wizards is planning on making use of those um, in Standard. They don't think that they're... Um, too unpleasant for people i guess at this point so uh we could see you know that come back in whatever set and suddenly those foils are going to be very low i mean that doesn't tend to crush the original price foil prices but it will make it difficult to find a buyer more importantly yeah agreed 
All right, so uh, got the crazy cat lady next on the list. Uh, I was, all right, you go ahead. I'll, I'll share my story after. Yeah, so Sahili Rai, everybody knows uh, if, if they've been paying attention that she moved from 5 to $25 um, over the course of the last week. Um, I sold out of them pretty easily in the $20 range um, and held back like a playset or two on the uh, off chance that A, she might not get banned immediately because banning a card uh, based on a combo that hasn't even been played yet seemed very unlikely to me. Um, and the... The, the, the other fact is that when I called Zahili in December, it had nothing to do with Cat Lady. I didn't know the cat was coming. But what I did know was that her ability to copy artifacts into her creatures and give them haste was inherently broken um, once the right piece appeared. Um, and that even if you banned Cat, some other piece might appear down the road, either in Standard, Modern, or el- elsewhere, um, that might make her relevant yet again. So, I mean, if she falls off the radar and gets low again, I'm, I'm only going to be looking to pick her up. <sighs> They moved that ban announcement up a week, and it happened to be a week that I was on site for a, uh, a go live project and couldn't really do anything at my computer. I wasn't at a desk. I was, you know, just kind of working with other, other people. So I was unable to get in front of my computer when the full spoiler list went up. Uh, oh, no. You, you know what it was? It wasn't the ban list it announcement. It was the spoiler list that went up yeah. on the Monday, and the I was not in front up. of the computer. Yeah, and normally, as soon as mm-hmm. that list goes up, I scour for commons and uncommons that trigger something like this, uh, but was uh, unable to buy any, and by the time I looked, they were gone, and I was so annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> you, you would have been a smarter man than me, because I went through the list twice and didn't pick up on the cat at all, despite having Sahili, stacks of Sahili sitting around. So the... Um, you know, sometimes the, the, when I saw the cat, I assumed that it's, uh, templating was the same as flicker wisp and the other white cards that have come before it. I did not realize that the templating was utterly different and turned off, a, turned on a completely different kind of combo. Yeah. I mean, I will go on record as saying, I'm not, I'm not saying I looked, I then looked through the spoiler, saw the card and immediately turned on to it. I like looked at my phone like two hours later and saw somebody tweet about it and went, Oh, I have to go buy Sahili rise. And then they were already gone. Uh, so I'm not, I would not necessarily have come up with it, but I sure as hell knew that that card was going to spike in price, but it was too late. So here's the thing. Um, if we didn't have the new ban policy in place where five weeks after the pro tour, they uh, have opened up the possibility of banning cards again. Um, I would be saying, you know, you could still buy these in the low 20s and potentially it could hit 40 if the deck does well. But given that they've already included a new safety valve, um, it's now very dangerous to be speculating on cards that are potentially too good. So um, if you're holding copies of Sahili, you almost certainly want to sell them. There are basically two things that could happen at the Pro Tour. Either the deck falls completely flat on its face and is a non-issue, in which case Sahili falls through the floor. Um, or the deck is incredibly good and puts four of eight deck, you know, copies in the top eight, and that thing gets the ban hammer five weeks later. So neither of those are situations that are going to make you any money. If the deck even does moderately well, people are still going to be scared to buy in on Sahili's if they don't have them already, because they're even if it means they're going to win their local LGS for four weeks, they're scared that in week five they might not be able to play it anymore. Um, and nobody wants to spend $80 that's that risky. So, I mean, this is a very weird, I, I think, or a dangerous decision that Wizards has made because uncertainty was what was keeping people um, away from uh, Standard. Uh, the uncertainty of whether or not uh, their cards would be banned, the uncertainty of whether or not um, uh, 
their deck would be any good against cards that were overpowered. Um, not knowing for sure whether things they spend money on um, are going to be playable is not really where you want to be, and it's not how you build communities out um, at a steady pace. And so putting us in a situation as a community where we have you know two uh, ban uh, list updates per cycle, and that's what, a total of eight per year now, um, is a very kind of sketchy place to be. And I've already seen numerous, numerous comments by people on social media saying that it it essentially has scared them off standard. It certainly, uh, it, it, it makes our life a little tougher because it's now much less clear uh, that it's safe to buy a card that seems to be dominating the Pro Tour because we're going to be wondering, is this going to get uh, hammered in five weeks? Um, but I agree, as much as it kind of makes it more difficult for us, it does. It makes it more difficult for players, too. And really, we don't quite know how liberal Wizards is going to be with this yet. I would expect that they will be very judicious in their use of the post-Pro Tour ban. Uh, but, you know, it's hard to know. And it, it's also an interesting timing given that... Uh, you know, I don't feel like five weeks after the Pro Tour, it can look like a deck like Aether, uh, not Aether, um, works Marvel, but like one particular deck is dominating, but then you get a couple, you know, a little bit further into the Pro Tour or into the metagame, and it turns out that it was like Emrakul is a problem all along, but that wasn't evident at five weeks. Um, so, you know, it's it's tricky to know what's Wizards going to think, and will the real deck have been showing up, and how judicious, you know, how liberal are they going to be with this program? I, I, I don't know. It certainly makes things difficult for a lot of people, though. I mean, the, the problem is that now you spot something like a smuggler's copter on, on a list and you go to yourself, oh, well, that can't be $3. That's insanely low. Like, that card's so broken. You're going to have to hit the pause button and say, but is it too broken? Because if it's too good, um, you know, this is not going to work out for me. Um, and, you know, I don't really care whether that's good for us as speculators because I don't think that us having a good time is important for the game. But it certainly matters whether players look at cards and say, well, I'm not going to buy the set because it's got too many good cards in it and I'm scared they're going to ban them. Like, that that's definitely not the position you want to be in. No, no, I agree completely. Um, All right, where are we? So that was Sahili Rai. We're on Stronghold Gambit. Uh, Stronghold Gambit from Nemesis. Non-foil started a dollar up to about five. Um, Stronghold Gambit has been on people's radar for uh, years. And I mean, I remember reading about this card as like a pick of the week years and years ago before I was writing for MTG Price. Because uh, it was it's sort of like a, uh, a show and tell type of card. It's really funky. I'm not clear where this spike came from. I mean, I thought it would have, might have had something to do with Reanimator, but I'm, I'm not positive about that. Do you have a better idea here than I do? Well, I mean, it wasn't played in the Black-Red Reanimator deck uh, that finished second uh, at Grand Prix Louisville. So, yeah, I, as far as I know, it's, it's uh, got some like minor amount of EDH play, and that's all I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing is, is it's a two-mana show, red show-and-tell. But it's the only person that gets their creature is the one who's cost the least amount of mana. But if you're playing against a deck like Miracles, what do they got? Four Snapcasters, maybe, or like two Snapcasters and a Vendillion Click. Sure. Like the uh, the odds are that yours is going to be the one that wins because the other person just won't have a card to put in. Uh, in which case, you know, you can turn one people with this. Um, 
So I, I don't know. That's that's my best guess, but it's not on the reserve list. Then again, I can't imagine them really reprinting this very often. It's a really odd card, but uh, I, I, I would sell them now. People have been waiting for years for this card to move in price. It finally did, uh, and that's long enough for me to not be inspired. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at EDH rec now, and it, and for me to say that there's reasonable EDH play is a stretch. I mean, the the there's maybe 40 decks total in the whole system that are running it. Um, they don't seem so. It doesn't seem like the EDH community is too confident about the card. Uh, I'm going to write this one off as a uh, sell it if you got it, and don't worry about it. Yeah, agreed. Well, you said it was like reasonable in EDH. I'm kind of thinking, I'm like, who plays this in EDH? <laughs> like, what deck would want that? Yeah, um, I mean, okay. When you've got four opponents that all might have a giant creature in hand, it's probably not the the greatest option unless everything you're running is fast and nasty. Yeah. Okay, why don't you uh, give us our last one for the week? One that we can be a little more confident with. So this one is a reanimator card and is related to GP Louisville. Uh, Unmask um, from Acadian Masks, a set that doesn't see uh, spikes all that often, um, had uh, this card move from $5 to $30. This is basically a discard spell that you can trigger by discarding another black card. So it's basically a, a free cast if you need it to be. Um, and uh, it's a four casting cost sorcery, but you never play it like that. You play it basically like a force of will in black. Um, you look at target player's hand, choose a non-land card from it, make them a discard it. And the whole idea here is that you're clearing the way for you to put in uh, Grizzlebrand or Sire of Insanity or Tide Spout Tyrant uh, on the back of a reanimate and exhume, uh, etc. Um, in the black-red reanimator deck that finished second at GP Louisville last weekend. Yep. Uh, I am also going to go ahead and tell you to get rid of these. It is not on the reserve list. Uh, you know, I, they're not going to reprint this in standard or anything, but that doesn't mean we won't see it again at some point. Um, and excitement on this card is higher now than it has been in basically ever. Uh, and I especially don't want to be, you know, trying to play the long game on anything legacy related. Yeah, exactly. This is, you know, outsider specs for legacy are definitely take advantage of a price spike and move on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. I would I would sell this. If I could get half of TCG low for my copies of Unmasked, I would happily take it. Yeah, I went hunting for them in, in my collection and was surprised to find that they weren't there. And I suspect they may have been thrown out at some point in a like... <laughs> I, I, at one point in my, in my Magic career, maybe six, seven years ago, I think I threw out about <clears throat> six or seven thousand Magic cards that I just deemed... Um, uh, too low power for me to ever put into a deck. Um, <laughs> I don't like to think too hard about what was in that. Yeah, I also sold a large chest of magic cards uh, some number of years ago when I only played casual and I try not to remember what was in there and the fact that it was probably half of it was Lorwyn block. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so let's move on to our, uh, our, our picks of the week, our cards to a to watch that we think we might be making uh, movement in the near or mid future. Yeah. So it looks like you've got one more than I do. So why don't you get us started? All right. The first thing that's on my radar that I picked up a few of this week are conspiracy two booster boxes at the $85 range. Um, This is a set that I suspect was opened uh, much less than it might've been otherwise given uh, how it was sandwiched in between Eldritch moon and Kaladesh. Um, at the end of in late summer when a lot of people are out enjoying the sunshine and not playing cards and as a result this set already has a pile of cards that are ten dollars plus including leovold emissary of trust and if you open one of those in the box you can more or less pay for the box on your own um, show and tell sanctum prelate berserk uh, recruiter of the guard Doretti, salvala kaya and even inquisition of kozilek uh, with the cool vampire art 
Um, so there's a lot of good cards in the set. Uh, I, I don't recommend popping the boxes unless you're you're digging for cards in particular or you feel feeling particularly risky because you can easily get a bad box of Conspiracy 2 um, and end up with like $20 or $30 in value. But the EV for the box is reasonably good already and likely to climb. Um, boxes are reasonably priced for now, but the inventory doesn't seem particularly deep. Um, so I, if I had to pick up any sealed product uh, currently, I would be looking at Conspiracy 2. Yeah, I've seen a couple people talk about this one. Uh, and what I also think is worth keeping in mind for our users, listeners who um, who are interested in pursuing this path, because I, I don't think it's a bad idea at all. It is a, a pretty chock full set, is to look at buying up store credit from people. Um, so if you grab, manage to grab, uh, you know, someone's $100 worth of Star City credit for $70 or something like that. Um, you know, they hand out gift cards all the time. People, you, the writers sell them, uh, all sorts of stuff. You can really, uh, you know, if you find a site with, with some of these in a good price and then you can buy store credit at a discount, you can really drag the prices of this thing down, uh, pretty good. So that, those two factors in combination can, can get you some great prices on this stuff. You can also keep an eye out for the end of quarter $15 coupons that uh, eBay has been dishing out lately um, to try to pick up a sealed product that you're interested in holding for a while. Um, I suspect that boxes of this will be uh, available for, you know, another few months at least around this price point, somewhere between 85 and 90. And there's potential that it might show up on mass drop um, as a as a deal there. And uh, so there's not a huge rush, but uh, I'm I'm happy to have a case sitting aside now. Sure, sure. I don't doubt it. Um, okay, uh, so my first pick of the week is uh, my two picks this week are a little more speculative, which is kind of funny for me to say, given that this is all speculation. But um, the cards in, in question are not at the prices I would buy them at yet, but they're cards from Aether Revolt that I am keeping an eye on. The first card is Aether Sphere Harvester. Um, this uh, is the vehicle. It is a three mana flying three five that when it enters a battlefield you get double energy uh you can pay an energy to give it lifelink and it has a crew of one so i was originally looking at this card uh when it was spoiled because it comes down a turn later than smuggler's copter but it's larger than smuggler's copter um it beats pretty hard it's just as easy to turn on and it stabilize it can stabilize reasonably well with the energy uh especially if you're running any other cards that generate energy you can it's basically a three mana three five flying lifelink now that smuggler's copter has been banned and there's sort of this vacuum of power for stuff like this it is real interesting for me uh aether sphere harvester so i'm i would like to get in at these at like two dollars uh i don't think they're that cheap at the moment i, mm -mm. I didn't actually look between four and five yeah, which is which is too expensive for me at the moment because I really don't like to get too too eager on stuff like this. Especially standard standard legal rares that are in pre order are are dangerous. Uh, but it is a card I'm going to keep my eye on because I do think the power level on this one is very high. Yeah, I mean the one concern I have here is I've been testing the Fast and the Furious uh, list that I put together uh, earlier this week that runs a whole crap ton of vehicles. <clears throat> alongside four copies each of Siege Modification and Start Your Engines, the red cards that basically turn on vehicles um, and let them attack for a crap ton of damage. Um, and what I found is that the most useful vehicles are actually Consulate Dreadnought. That's the 711 for one mana. Um, Cultivator's Caravan, because at the very worst you get a mana rock. 
um, Renegade Freighter because um, with modification to start your engines, it's attacking with Trample for a ton of damage. Um, and Peace Walker Colossus because it gives you a backup plan for turning on the vehicles. Um, and I'm only running one Ether Sphere Harvester and two Heart of Kirin because the the deck doesn't really uh, need a 3-5 defensive creature so much as it needs an attacker. All of that being said, there's nothing nothing proven yet that this deck is even real. Um, I suspect it's probably tier 2. Um, and Ethersphere Harvester as a 3-5 that can crew for 1 seems more like the kind of card that you want uh, when you're in some kind of tempo deck um, that is trying to attack in and block simultaneously. Maybe you've got some Planeswalkers. Um, you know, you're plopping a Gideon down after the Harvester, you're making the 2-2, you're turning on the Harvester. Um, it's got interact, it gets lifelink when you spend energy, so the energy decks might want to run it in in mirror matches or, or what have you. Um, I don't know what the, the place for this is. I'm, I'm dubious that it is going to end up being a 4-of, and uh, a 4-of in potentially multiple decks in the way that would take it from, say, the $2 target you're probably looking at to, say, 5 or $6. But standard is in... And, and there's also this specter of Cat Lady that may make all of these interesting um, deck ideas a moot point if if it runs rampant for the first month. <laughs> Only for the first five weeks, though. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think that... With regards to your your testing, which is which is always a good idea, right? Like if you can actually manage to build list and grind game, grind games, that gives you such a huge advantage in understanding cards. My thought in that regard, in this in this specific instance, is that if you're playing a deck that um, strictly just wants to turn vehicles on, that you aren't going to be interested in vehicles that are easy to turn on normally. Like you're going to be interested yep. in the yeah. really yep. high payoff vehicles. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, so I, my, my point was was simply that, that I don't know what the tempo deck is or the kind of mid-range control shell is that wants Harvester, but I do believe in its power level. I mean, a 3-5 flyer that can potentially have lifelink and is immune to sorcery speed removal and, and cruise for the minimum um, is, is definitely a, a playable card in standard. The question is where it's going to, you know, where it might pop up at the level that we need it to to make it a worthwhile investment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I could see this. I could see a universe, and this is just one of many, where this essentially replaces Smuggler's Copter. Like, that, that's sort of your best case scenario, is it fills that role for a lot of strategies. It doesn't do the looting, but it provides you a really uh, difficult-to-deal-with threat in the air. Um, and instead of giving you card advantage, it gives you, you know, some life barrier, which is, uh, on the whole, probably slightly worse, but it's it's a stronger creature. Uh, so, you know, slightly better there. But th- that's where my perspective on it is. But, of course, you know, we, we don't really know. The cards that are... Ext- in a vacuum, the most powerful in a format can be irrelevant if people can turn three, turn four, kill you with a planeswalker and a cat. Um, so I don't know, but it's just it's on, it's on my radar. That's sort of the point. Yeah. So speaking of smuggler's copter, that's my next pick this week. Um, once it gets low enough that it's especially tempting. So currently, it had. I mean, the floor has not fallen out as hard on this card as it might have. It's sitting at around five dollars. Um, you can find copies as low as four. Um, once it gets down into the you know three to four dollar range, I start to get pretty interested. And at two dollars, I'm all in um, because this card is potentially playable in modern in a deck like black white tokens, um, where it would probably be a four of. Um, and it's certainly playable in Frontier, um, which is you know, a format that's too small to really matter so far for MTG Finance. Um, 
in the in the short to midterm, but could potentially be a thing. Um, and Copter is just so powerful that it's going to be, you know, potentially have uh, casual or EDH demand um, for years to come. So the 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 lower the price card on this card gets, the more willing you should be to sock away a few playsets. I'm I'm partially surprised that Smuggler's Copter hasn't dropped more. Uh, but, you know, with cards like this, I kind of expect a lot of people to kind of have enough of a sour taste in their mouth that they're not eager to get rid of them. They're kind of like, well, it's banned. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. I might as well list it for some number of dollars and hope that somebody wants it. But it is a very powerful card that, that has done a lot. And, uh, you know, depending on if we ever see, like, Inspire come back. Um, or wait, is it Inspire? Is that the one I'm thinking of where uh, if when you un- untap the creature, it does stuff? I mean, that yeah is that what is it inspire is that what it was called okay like you know a return of that or people figuring that out could suddenly make this a lot more interesting you know vehicles turn that type of effect on so uh so i think this is interesting at two dollars sure i mean it's clearly proven that it has the chops to do well um and you know the leap from there to to modern does not need to be too large yeah, and I'm. It's testing well so far in black white tokens for me. Um, you know, I'll be. It's going to be more interesting when you see a pro say that they've been testing it. Um, it was inspired, by the way, not inspire, but uh, uh, certainly correct. And um, yeah, I, I'll put it to you this way: people were sending me copters on Puka Trade, um, foil and non-foil, directly after the banning, and I just let them go down. Um, as long as the price was you know accurate to TCG, which for a bit it was not. Um, all the rest of the ones that I was sent, I'm happy to pick up because um, people dumping foils on me for, uh, let's see, what was it for? Yeah, foil smuggler copters for eight or nine dollars. <laughs> that That's fine. I'll take I'll, I'll take those all day. Um, I believe they've got a future. Yeah, sure. I can see that. I should uh, I should put stuff like that on my pre trade list. See if I can get some movement there. Jeez. Um, OK. My second pick this week is one that I've heard from a couple sources, um, people who, who just who think the card's interesting. And I was a bit skeptical at first, but I've come to like it more um, the more I've thought about it. I picked up a few play sets myself today. That is Walking Ballista, uh, also from Aether Revolt. Right now, copies are you're mostly going to be paying like two to three dollars a copy, which I think is a little too much. Um, probably closer to three, really. Uh, I managed to grab them. I found a few playsets under two. Um, wait, you're just you're linking me here, James. Is that? Oh yeah, I was just sending you a picture of the deck that I put together with Walking Ballista um, oh. a couple of days ago that has an infinite combo in uh, in modern. Um, yes. Basically, if you have uh, a couple of mirror retrievers and an uh, and uh, two of either Ethereum Sculptor or Foundry Inspector out, then you can cast artifacts that uh, are two or less uh, for zero. Um, and then you can just uh, cycle through Mirror Retrievers by sacking them to either Arcbound Ravager or Kark Clan Ironworks, uh, ending up with infinite counters on the Ravager, which you then transfer to the Ballista and then kill whatever you need to kill to finish the game. Sure. So... Uh, James, seven card combos aside, <laughs> the, um, you know, last year we saw Hangerback Walker go nuts with a double, co- you know, with a creature of this type, and people were severely underrated at first. So that's sort of a little bit of a tick. Um, it's it's miserable when you kill it, 
because no matter how you get rid of it, they just sack all the counters to damage your creatures or you before it dies. So, you know, you're never really getting great value on it. Uh, it goes in any color deck. You can protect against the twin combo in standard because at one point, Sahili will have one loyalty, so you can stop it as long as this is in play um, without having to hold up mana too, which is big. Uh, it works really well with Revolt um, because you can just sack the Walking Ballista and then turn on Revolt. Uh, it works well with Avacyn because you can trigger that. Um, it, you know, it's an artifact artifact creature for Delirium, uh, the green-black snake with it makes counters combos with it. So there's just all sorts of useful scenarios and value interactions, plus the fact that with Arcbound Ravager, this thing is just stupid. Uh, I mean, it's it, – this is – it is arguably better than Ink Moth Nexus in some of those board stalls because there, there are times where, where Affinity would just sack, you turn on Ink Moth Nexus, dump everything to Ravager, dump Ravager to Ink Moth and swing. Uh, and, and you could always just use Walking Blista instead. If you've hit them down to a certain life total, you can just move all the counters to Walking Blista and then just shoot them in the face. Um, so clearly there's some, some utility here in the card. Uh, uh, again, I'm not advocating you go spend three or four dollars on it, but if this makes it considerably under two dollars in the dollar dollar fifty range, uh, I think it's worth at least at least worth picking up your own set and uh, probably a couple others because uh, a lot of people seem to think the power level is there on this guy. Yeah, I, I think that at a dollar I'll be in for multiple play sets, and I'm going to be looking to see how low foils get as well because the applications could be all the way back to Legacy and Vintage where this thing could be uh, a replacement for Triskelion and Mud decks and so forth. Yeah, the, people, um, I was just say Vintage players, I heard Vintage players were flipping out about this. Not that we care about them at all, but it is interesting that it at least has application you know, not not that the application matters, but that the people recognize there's, it's powerful. Of course, they and, also play Slash Panther. Panther so. <laughs> Any one of the potential applications doesn't have me excited, but the fact that it might show up in any any number of different formats uh, semi-simultaneously means that there could be some future price movement on the card. There's also um, value with this card in Hardened Scales decks, which has applications in EDH and Casual and certainly in Frontier, where, um, you know, being able to drop this in as a 3-3 three, three for 2, I mean, a 3-3 three, three for 4, um, or a 4-4 four, for four, 6, um, and then kill some relevant stuff and potentially uh, buff it up with additional counters. Um uh, has some something to be said for it. Atraxum might want this card. I I haven't built my Atraxa deck yet, but so I'm not sure like uh, how many slots are already kind of guaranteed by more busted things. But um, uh, it certainly has uh, interesting implications with doubling season and Atraxa in play. I wonder if uh, Atlazan will bring back Proliferate or something. That's sure. a very infecty uh, infecty mechanic. But after Atlazan, you could see Proliferate show up, and then this thing would just be silly. Yeah. So yeah, I like Ballista at a low enough price. Uh, I'm a little more interested in foils than non because as a as a in play uh, in print rare, um, unless it becomes very popular and standard, uh, there's going to be a crap ton of these on TCG player, and it'll be hard for it to move until three or four hundred copies drain out of the system. Um, but yeah, I, there's something here for sure. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm always extremely reluctant to buy new standard rares, uh, but at the same time, in every set, there's a smuggler's copter or something similar, um, you know. And because every single person playing standard wants them, the price manages to go to go up very considerably, even in spite of the fact of that. Uh, 
So, you know, if you, if you can find it, you keep your eyes out and figure it out. The, the, the money's there, but I agree. It, it's, it's dangerous. I so, so one of the things we didn't mention is that it's a construct. Um, and there are some construct synergies now. Um, uh, for instance, Steel Overseer, Walking Ballista, and Scrap Trawler are all constructs, as is Foundry Inspector. Oh. Um, so they have some synergy with, say, Metallic Mimic, for instance. So Metallic Mimic doesn't just buff the team. It buffs the team with plus one, plus one counters. So uh, if you make Mimic a construct and then you play Ballista, then it gets uh, a bonus counter. Um, and Scrap, Scrap Trawler say, is a 3-2 for 3 in a, the Revolt that says, whenever Scrap Trawler or another artifact you control is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, return to your hand target artifact card in your graveyard with lesser converted mana cost. So despite the fact that Walking Ballista is effectively, e- you know, usually going to be either a 4 casting cost or a 6 casting cost card, um, Scrap Trawler can bring it back when almost any artifact dies that is 1 or greater in actual casting cost because as a double X spell, Ballista cost uh, counts as a zero in the graveyard. Oh, that's spicy. The fact that you mm-hmm. can just drain your uh, ballista for a bunch of damage and then just place trawler and pick it right back up again. Yeah, and and if you can, if you find some way for if one of your artifacts, like say, uh, dies in combat, or you find a way to sacrifice it for value, um, and the trawler's still in play, then you could be doing that potentially multiple times. Ooh, I like it. I like it. All right, so my final pick of the week is Expropriate, um, but I'll give credit uh, on this one to Jason Alt and other people in the EDH community that have been talking about this card for a while. Um, it's not something that uh, came up in my research other than it was one of the mythics that looked like it had legs in uh, Conspiracy 2 when we first were looking over that list. Um, but the inventory on this card has gotten relatively low. I'm only seeing 27 results on TCG Player. They range from $6 with shipping at the minimum up to about 10 um, I have a feeling that this is going to be a card that moves from you know $6 to 15 within the year because people are just not going to be opening much Conspiracy two as time goes on um and you know despite my claim that we should all go out and buy booster boxes um not everybody's going to follow that and as such the good cards out of the set are going to continue to climb would be my guess um there's no chance this is getting reprinted anytime soon we just saw it um the soonest opportunity would be commander 2017 and i think that will only happen if the card spikes super super high and is very very popular and there's clamoring demand in which case it shows up in one of the decks next fall um between then and now i think you're going to get a good chance to make some money yeah, I think this is a great choice. I will uh, should really go out of my way to pick this up because um, it is. It's just one of those slam dunk EDH cards. We talked uh, on our on our year end review how EDH seemed to be the best place to go for for making profit um, in 2016. So uh, seems like a nice easy double up there, or even triple up depending on what you grab them for. Yeah, I mean, if people don't know what this is, Expropriate is a sorcery, blue sorcery for seven and two blue. It has Council's Dilemma. It says, starting with you, each player votes for time or money. For each time vote um, at your table of EDH players, take an extra turn after this one. For each money vote, you choose a permanent owned by the voter and gain control of it. So either you're stealing their best permanent or they're giving you a turn. Um, and I'm assuming that if you anybody gives you multiple turns, then you're going to use those to win the game. Yeah, this is... Uh, basically, like in the worst case scenario, it's blatant thievery, which is two less mana. But you have the uh, the upside of people just choosing wrong, and giving you turns because the answer is absolutely never give them a turn. Yeah, and if you if you really want to get not invited back to that play group, f- figure out a way to bring it back from exile because it exiles itself. Um, there are numerous ways with Eldrazi. 
Yeah, that would be. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't want you at my play group, even if, if casting this in the first place, much less. <laughs> casting it multiple times per game. Not only can you not play EDH with me, you have to get out of my house. Just leave. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you cast it during your extra turns, right? Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's how it works, right? You as you start setting that up so that uh, they don't get another turn. Yeah. So cards busted. Uh, <laughs> format is very popular. Uh, there aren't that many sitting around, um, and I think it'll make you some money. Okay. Uh, so we don't have a metagame in review this week because uh, there really wasn't. Well, I guess we can talk about Louisville, right? Like you wanted to talk about that uh, a little bit. Yeah, let me let me just spend a few minutes on what happened at GP Louisville. Um, I think it's important to cover it for the legacy fans in the audience because they didn't get any video coverage and they were pretty upset about it. Um, personally, I'm I'm totally fine with legacy going the way of the dinosaur, despite the fact that I own multiple le- legacy decks and really enjoy the format. Um, I just don't think it's good for the brand for reasons I've already discussed in depth on other occasions. Um, but let's talk about GP Louisville, where Reed Duke won the tournament, which is the number one reason that video coverage would have been great, because Reed Duke is basically the poster child for um, good Magic players that play well um, and are good people. And... Uh, I love it when Reed wins stuff, and I'm sorry I didn't get to see it on camera. Um, Reed was playing True Name Bug, so uh, a blue-green-black deck that was running four Deathrite Shaman, two Leovold Emissary of Trest, which is part of the reason that card uh, continues to hold its plateau, um, Noble Hierarchs, Tarmogoy, four True Name Nemesis, uh, three Abrupt Decay, Brainstorms, Dazes, Force of Wills, a Murderous Cut, uh, Two Ponders and Two Thought Seas alongside Jace the Mind Sculptor, Sylvan Library, and Umazawa's Jite. I mean, this sounds like a just a super fun deck to play if you've been around Magic for a while. I mean, getting to play with some of the best cards of all time. You have a... I mean, yeah, this is a very powerful deck. I, I hesitate on the word fun because fun for me involves my opponent having no fun, typically. Uh, <laughs> but, and, but yes, this is this is, does, does a lot of stuff. There's this is too interactive for you? Yeah, it really, that's really what it boils down to. I, I don't like interactive games. I just... You, so so I guess you like the second deck more, the uh, black-red reanimator that uh, looks to shut them down with Chancellor of the Annex and Unmask and then put Gristlebrand in play on turn two? Well, I like it because people bought all of my Chancellor of the Annexes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is definitely more more my speed for the most part. Um, see those four those four Unmasks in the main deck? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some interesting stuff in your four reverent silence in the sideboard. That's a that's a curious one. That's a card um, you don't see every day. This is a, no. a sorcery for three and a green. If you control a forest, you may have each other player gain six life instead of playing its cost. Destroy all enchantments. Um, is is that against uh, miracles? It must be right. I mean, I guess probably miracles and also people that bring in rest in peace or ley line so that you fetch for a bayou and then you cast this for free and destroy like ley lines and rest in peace and that type of thing. And gets rid of counterbalance in miracles. And, right, right, right. And right. counterbalance can't counter it because it costs four, but you get to cast it for free. That's kind of clever. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Uh, and so uh, finishing out the top eight, we had Grixis Delver uh, and Miracles. Uh, Miracles was in the hands of uh, Brian Braun Duin, our uh, current reigning world champion. Uh, Bug Aggro, Midrange, Death and Taxes, Grixis Delver, and Sneak and Show. So uh, Craig Wesco um, with that Death and Taxes list uh, finishing top eight in a GP. Um, always nice to see the, the guy who is uh, kind of the foremost defender of small white creatures uh, top baiting with uh, a pretty cool list that had two recruiter of the guard and a sanctum prelate out of the aforementioned conspiracy two set 
Yeah, I, I was just looking at that list. It didn't have too much uh, exciting. But see, this is one of my problems with Legacy is you rarely see anything really outside of the box that you haven't seen before. You'll see like one Sanctum Prelate make it into the Dexter and Taxes deck and like, you know, two Recruiter of the Guards. There's a little bit, but just never enough to like really get me jazzed. Like, wow, this is something really new and cool. But uh, in any case, it's still, it's still an interesting take on it showing that those cards are, are definitely are definitely real. <laughs> What are you laughing about? It's not going to make us any money, but there is a Palace Jailer. I bet nobody listening can tell me what that card does. It's two and two white human soldier out of conspiracy. When Palace Jailer enters the battlefield, you become the monarch. When Palace Jailer enters uh, the battlefield, exile target creature and opponent controls until an opponent becomes the monarch. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely an interesting strategy. I bet that was a reader when people got that played against them. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. For sure, for sure. I looked at it, and I admit, when I looked at the list, I thought it was something else. But when you started reading, reading, I was like, "Oh yeah, I remember that card." Is uh, if Legacy was was an important financial format, we would be probably excited that there was two Gideon ally of Zendikar in his sideboard. Yeah, I suppose so. But this is the, I, I guess my, the larger point that I would talk about with Louisville here is that this uh, this is one of the only meaningful Legacy events of the year because there's like what two legacy gps all year i think and is the other one in europe i don't have the list in front of me but there's not many um so support excitement. has been significantly slashed um where star city games used to run legacy tournaments they mostly run modern um alongside standard tournaments and they will occasionally run a legacy and the gps will occasionally be legacy but this is really just to give um that you know that kind of static portion of uh the magic player base their outlet um, so they don't cause too much trouble. Um, and also because the format's great and deserves to have, you know, some degree of support. Sure. I mean, it's, it's fun. I, I've never I've never questioned that it's an, an enjoyable format. It's just, you know, if you're not a diehard fan, it's, I, I'm going to say meaningless. But um, I guess, again, the large point here is that don't expect the excitement around the cards and the prices to continue. Reanimator stuff is really hot right now because it was just yeah, at the GP. Uh, people were talking about it. People are thinking about it in two months when there's no more. There's only one more Grand Prix and it's in Spain uh, in November. No one's going to care about Unmask, right? Like, so just, you know, I would I would not expect this uh, the sudden surge in excitement in a strategy to persist. Yeah, I mean, the, the most relevant card that's been legacy-affected has been Leovold, uh, Emissary of Trust. He's already spiked from as low as $10 up into the $60 to $70 range, and that tr- I, I have now completely sold out and happily out in the $60 range. Um, and, you know, you could hold, you can hang in there and try to glean some more money, but, you know, don't get greedy. Just take your cash and put it into something else that's going to make you, that's going to have a higher upside than leaving it in Leovold from here on out. Yeah, and if you think that legacy is what made Leovold expensive, uh, I got news for you. This is a hundred. This is all the ninety nine percent EDH and one percent legacy. So he, he he's got forthcoming um, judge promo written all over him, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Which makes those foils that people that you know that spiked like one hundred and fifty dollars or some nonsense uh, pretty dangerous, I would say as well. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to our topic of the week. We wanted to touch on the announcement that was made by the president of Wizards of the Coast, a gentleman by the name of Chris Cox that joined the team last year, I believe, um, and finally looks like he's making some moves that might shake things up. So there was a press release that went out uh, on January 12th um, called Making Moves. 
Um, and uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let's just, I'll cover off the bullets that they bothered to highlight in bold. Um, we are reimagining digital versions of Magic and other Wizards games. Um, we will bring our characters and worlds to other games and experiences. And we will make your Wizards experiences more efficient, connected, and convenient. So, the way I interpret this is, they are now actively working on a replacement for the Magic Online platform that will start with an entirely fresh code base. Um, they will reach out and partner with whoever is necessary to try to make that as cross-platform as possible. Um, they will attempt to license their characters to as many other places as possible to um, drive revenue sharing that will allow them to fund these endeavors. And investments in Magic Online are now especially risky. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that's that's a very good takeaway from there. Uh, before we dive into the news too much, does the, when they one of the sentences in there is something about how, how exciting would it be to sling spells as a planeswalker in an MMO. Uh, does that hold any interest for you? Because I read that and I'm like, I have never felt... I enjoy the Magic story within the context of the game. Uh, but I have never really thirsted for an expanded magic universe in the way that, like, the idea of a like a good Star Wars video game does, right? Like, I don't know. It's just never really appealed to me on that level. Does it do anything for you? So I think the funny thing is I'm already doing it because I play Paragon, which is basically the, the first person um, uh, clone of the various laning games that have been ultra popular in the video gaming world for the last 10 years. Um, you know, you're you're selecting characters in a draft, you're taking down towers, you're trying to get to their core, et cetera, et cetera. Um, game's about a year old on PlayStation, Xbox, and PC. Um, game's pretty solid, um, and they have a character in it that's called Gideon that looks like Jace and works like Jace. So um, I already feel like I'm playing Jace and Paragon on a regular basis vis-a-vis -vis the Gideon character. Um, and... I liked it. Like I, I, I recognized where, like the the reference, and it was enjoyable. Um, would I play it uh, in the context of some other game that they co-partner with somebody on? Yes, I totally would if the game was good. Now the problem here with almost every game since the original um, Chandelier um, in the mid nineties is that the games have been really bad, um, and they've never been able to marshal partnerships that had deep enough pockets and were committed enough to the license that they were going to ensure the game was a blockbuster. Um, I don't have much faith in Hasbro, um, to drive this process because, uh, what people fail to recognize is that Hasbro is essentially an old school retailing and distribution company that um, has been leaning on legacy li licenses from 1980s toys for like 30 years. And, um, you know, you strip a lot of that away and you don't have a very interesting company that has done much in the way of innovation. Um, even the magic product is not something that was internally developed at Hasbro. You know, this was Richard Garfield and friends that put this together. And then, you know, a small gaming company called Wizards of the Coast bought it because it looked like it had potential. And lo and behold, here we are many years that later. It's close, but not perfectly accurate, but go ahead. Okay. Correct me if you if you will. It was I'm under the impression that Wizards of the Coast owned D D and then approached Garfield in some capacity. I think he might have been working there at the time, but they approached him to make have him make a game that people could play while waiting for their turn in D D. It was meant no. to be a light game that you could play while you were playing D D. 
So, <laughs> that's, that's so a story let, I've let, heard. Let, that, that's incorrect as well. So let me all let right, me right. let me reclarify that. So the actual story is that he was trying to make a game that people could play in convention lineups. Um, the the idea was that you could just whip out a pack of these cards and play while you were waiting in these long lines at San Diego Comic Con and so forth. Um, Wizards did not own D and D at the time. They only bought that much later. In fact, I think it was about a decade after Magic took off that that happened. Um, and uh, yeah, so that that's my understanding. Now, uh, the bottom line here is this: Wizards is not a digital company, and Hasbro is not a digital company, and almost all of their efforts in in this direction have been failures or are deep, deeply troublesome. Um, Magic Online is essentially um, you know 1990s software that still is getting played in in 2017, and almost feels like some kind of retro throwback at this point to earlier versions of online gaming. Um, and so I think that we have every reason as players to be excited that they might get this right. Now, when is this going to show up? Is it this year, the next year, the year after, or six years from now? I mean, the track record for fixes on Magic Online, for instance, how many, it took almost a decade to get leagues up and running after they took them down and told us they would be back in three months. Um, that doesn't give us a lot of reason to have confidence in, you know, how quickly we're going to see this progress or what it will mean for the players. Now, the other side of that is as somebody who's heavily invested in Magic Online, I have something like, you know, 10,000 tickets worth of product um, uh, and manage uh, a few thousand more for other people. Um, and for the guys that are running bots, I mean, they've, they've really got to be, you know, questioning their commitment to this business process because um, there's a whole bunch of different ways this could play out. And I don't think it's just we shut down Magic Online, everybody loses their assets and they switch, turn this other thing on and it doesn't have an economy or it forces you to start from scratch. I don't think that's what happens. Um, I think in an ideal world, they transfer all of the collections. There is still an economy. It's unclear whether bots would be part of it. Um, and they would layer some other kind of introductory experience that is somewhere between Duels of the Planeswalkers and Hearthstone. Um, to kind of introduce people to the license. So there'd be this kind of like uh, kid-friendly beginner version of Magic that was had a simpler rule set. And then you would, you know, unlock a bunch of tiers and then eventually unlock the, the game proper and decide whether you wanted to transition into um, traditional online drafting and so forth. And hopefully that's all done in an interface that, uh, you know, is... Uh, a step even forward from Duels of the Planeswalkers, um, which was a very successful uh, method for recruiting new players vis-a-vis -vis iPads and so forth. Um, the, the problem is that what might happen is they create this really great new product and they run it alongside Magic Online and they don't take turn anything off. They just keep it running. But because the new product is so compelling, they just let people drain naturally from the old product to the new product over some period of time, call it a year or two years. And the value of cards in the old system, if they're not transferred over or they're not transferable, um, just slowly drains over time. So that nobody can really point a finger at them and say, oh, you wrecked this yesterday and now it's broken. Um, it will just be kind of this, this natural transition in the same way that like people move off last year's Call of Duty to the new Call of Duty and whatever skins or what have you that they bought to enhance that experience are kind of forgotten and those costs are sunk. So in all of these scenarios, do you still see a fully functioning magic game or is, are they still providing the same experience online? Like, I, I, I think that play I real think magic. I, I suspect that they absolutely will include real magic. 
but that they may dilute the experience or, or the purity of the experience by providing some lesser version of the game that is faster paced, that uses the licenses um, and allows for really kind of like quick five, 10 minute interactions. Um, and I think that if we look at even changes they're making in Magic Online lately, like there was an announcement today that they're going to have um, single game matches for uh, limited uh, on Magic Online that are going to have relatively bad prize pools um, or prize pools that were kind of like more evenly distributed from top to bottom so that um, bad players would get more out of the experience or, or would recoup more of their investment per match played. Um, that seems to suggest to me that they keep looking at models like Hearthstone and that their interpretation of those models is that part of the reason they're more successful is that you don't have to ha- uh, uh, you don't have to commit as much time to the game and any one sitting. And so you tend to pick it up more often. And I think that they are probably um, emboldened along those lines because they've seen the success of leagues. I mean, I thought it was really, really weird to be, you know, to draft and then end up playing people that might have a mirror match type deck that, you know, I got all the blue red cards, but you also have all the blue red cards. Like, what the fuck's going on? Um, but because you can, you can kind of drop in and out of those leagues whenever you want to. They've been extremely popular, and I think that that signals to them that this, you know, flexibility in my time commitment is an important um, aspect to any new version of the product. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Um, I, you know, for a long time, I've been talking about how I think that Wizards Online offering would eventually essentially split from Magic proper. Um, And I kind of figured that, you know, you could still, you'd always still be able to play legitimate Magic Online, Uh, but their much more popular title would look a lot more like Hearthstone or something in that universe where it's not the same rule set, it's the same brand, and it's very similar. But think of something like Epic or Eternal or any of those other uh, titles um, that are similar to Magic, but not the same, that are built up, ground up for a digital platform. Uh, because, you know, you can get a thousand times more player on that product. Um, and, you know, I, you know, there was some discussion going on online uh, the other day, a day or two, two ago, about uh, how much money you're making for average player. And, like, Wizard, you know, Magic Online makes obscene amounts of money on average per player but you know if you've got one one thousandth the number of people on the platform uh it's not as impressive um so i I do think that we are i I am in agreement and have been for a while that we are probably looking at a scenario where uh eventually we have multiple magic named games online that have varying play experiences one of which is what we know as magic so one of the risks there for kind of like core magic players is that if they create the simplified magic rule set and that game becomes super popular, you know, it's probably never going to be Hearthstone level, but let's say it even gets to uh, 15 or 20% of Hearthstone's popularity. Um you need to understand what that would mean for the core game, right? Like that relegates the core game to uh, an outdated niche that they would continue to service, but with less and less focus as time went on. Um, so success in this in this uh, direction carries risks for players who like Magic just the way it is. 
Um, you know, magic is a complex game. It tends to be very popular with people who like to solve puzzles, who people, people who are especially intelligent, um, who are good at math, who, um, have, uh, obsessive compulsive tendencies or like to collect things. Um, there are a bunch of factors that make, that have relegated magic to, you know, despite in theory having 20 million players worldwide, there's a bunch of reasons why it doesn't have 200 million or, or 2 billion players worldwide. Um, 2 billion? <laughs> Well, well, I mean, there's, there, there are games. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about something like soccer, right? Like that—that's probably how many soccer fans there are. The, well. um, <laughs> the, and because the game is so universal, you just need anything that you can kick around like a ball, and 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 you can use anything as goalposts, and and therefore it's the most universal game on the planet. Um, uh, and there are a whole bunch of reasons why Magic doesn't meet that yardstick by a long mile. Um. And so the better they do at uh, emulating Hearthstone, the greater the risk to the core brand uh, or, or the, the current expression of the core brand. Um, yeah. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking, thinking about an argument I saw the other day. Um, somebody was really angry about how uh, it didn't. Wizards wasn't matter reprint enough cards. I don't know, whatever. Basically, their argument boiled down to the fact that they were angry that Wizards was a business and that Magic, first and foremost, is a product that they sell to make money. It is not uh, a, a service that is owed uh, to the larger player base. So I think it's very it's easy to lose sight of that. But when you keep that in mind, it suddenly what you're talking about makes a lot of sense. Like, oh, yeah, if some version of magic, some IP that uses magic becomes more popular than what we know as magic, the resource allocation will shift. And uh, magic as a whole may become legacy while this other product becomes standard. Uh, I think is a pretty good way to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, so, and, and, and this this is not going to happen tomorrow, right? Like we are looking at a five to ten years at least for this type of shift to occur. I think, but it is something to be aware of. Yeah, I mean, it could be as soon as two years, but that would that that's only going to be the case if Hasbro and we don't know what the number is, but I suspect it's much lower than it would need to be for this to for this to happen very quickly. Um, you know, if they put a few hundred million dollars behind it, there's a lot that can be accomplished. If they're putting five million behind it, ten million, twenty million, those numbers just don't mean a lot in the video gaming world. Um, you know, it sounds like a lot of money to a listener, but it's not really enough to pull together a crack team of programmers and video game um, designers. And this is not a brand that's going to be like, if you're a guy who's, you know, working at Blizzard Activision um, or, you know, one of the, you know, Rockstar games or something, you're not going to get lured away to this team. I mean, Wizards of the Coast has a, a longstanding um, reputation as underpaying their technical employees and their employees in general. So um, in some of the most competitive aspects of, uh, of human resources, um, you know, they are unlikely to be able to compete to get top talent. And it's interesting that they said, uh, building a publishing team to explore partnerships and collaborations that will bring magic and D&D to unexpected settings, genres, and platforms. That says to me that they're going to send out a, um, a request for proposal from a bunch of potential um, gaming companies to bring the, the brands together and then co-fund a project or something. It's, it doesn't sound like they're going to be doing any of that in-house. They're going to be inviting other people to um, suggest projects. Um, 
And the problem there is that this isn't, again, is not the kind of license that's going to attract top tier um, gaming talent or or proposals. And so, you know, you're likely to end up with like a Leapfrog Enterprises type partner like they had on the original uh, Magic Online um, to, or sorry, Leaping Lizard was the name of the company at that point. Leaping Lizard uh, was, I, I believe, the company that made the first version of Magic Online. And you're going to get a similar tier two, tier three kind of partnership going. Um, that doesn't give me a, a super warm and fuzzy about what's happening. I think the bottom line for me is that um, I'm definitely not going to be uh, extending my investments into Magic Online any further, and I'm going to start to unwind positions that I think are particularly long-term um, and really focus on the short to midterm stuff, because who knows um, when they issue another press release that has a major, major impact on collections, uh, especially since if they handle the process of sharing information incorrectly, it could create all sorts of widespread panic that would lead to the, the prices of Magic Online product crashing. Mm-hmm. This is certainly... As a player, this announcement is exciting, right? You're like, wow, there could really be some great advancements in the in the digital world that makes it so much easier to enjoy this game that I love. But for people in our shoes, or at least this aspect of our interest in the product, it is very scary because you're like, uh, a lot of things could change that would really shake up the value of all of this stuff. Uh, and you don't want to get your, caught with your pants down in that regard. So, yeah. Um, Certainly not instilling confidence in that regard. So I guess the final point worth mentioning is that they they mentioned a revamped technology team led by longtime wizard Aaron Goolsby, um, which will be focused on connecting these kinds of in-store and online interactions, um, including they mentioned getting matched in big tournaments uh, and tracking your achievements online. So I think what they I, I wrote an article a little while ago about how poorly they were um, sharing information with the with LGS uh, operators and how weird it was that we all have a DCI number with which they can use to track our track our purchases and rewards um, alongside our tournament results and that they don't make any use of that. I'm hoping that this means they're going to move in, in somewhat in that direction and start with some pretty straightforward things like being able to submit uh, or standardizing the submission of um, deck lists for GPs and so forth via online means um, in the age of the smartphone. Um, so hopefully this will mean you know increased convenience and efficiency in, in all sorts of uh, day-to-day physical world interactions that are driven by smart technology. Yeah, I think when I read that, what what I immediately saw was, oh, wow, DCI reporter is not going to suck. It won't crash. They'll be able to run large events and it will generate and the tournament experience in general will be more pleasant for people. Um, you know, that's that's what I got out of that. And I, I'm sure that it will have reaching effects in a variety of places, uh, some of which may be obvious and others won't be. But that type of thing, I think, is very good for the game, um, even if it's not going to uh, have an immediate impact on card prices. It's just a more stable way to engage with magic is certainly going to be uh, welcomed by a lot for a lot of people. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that we've had our say on that topic. So that's a wrap for this week, folks. Where can people find you online, Travis? You missed the spiciest part of that uh, announcement, James. Oh, what's that? Well, farewell to Worth Wolpert. Yeah, I mean... yeah, I didn't, really want to, didn't want to rub it in his face uh, in public since I'm sure he's not having a great week. Um, well, you know, I, I want to highlight that I'm not giving the guy a hard time. And for what it's worth, I think I, – I, you know, I don't have insight into Wizards. But I think that a lot of decisions made were not necessarily his. I think there was a lot of um, 
a lot dictated from above. I think that his hands were tied, especially in terms of budget. And I think that he was the only public figure from that team. So he gathered all of the uh, frustration from the the public. So I I really don't want to put a lot of this on his shoulders. Um, but sure. so it, for it people who don't know, see change. Yeah, I mean, for people who don't know, Worth Wolpert was um, yeah, held various positions inside Wizards, all related to Magic Online, that and was custodian of the brand um, for several years, um, as my as I understand it. Uh, and when anything went wrong with him, there was like a meme blame Worth um, that suggested everything was all his fault. Um, him being fired is not exciting because, uh, you know, anybody holds any animosity to the man personally. Um, it's more that it may uh, signal a sea shift in the um, the staffing of Magic's digital product lines um, that hopefully means that things are headed in the right direction. Right, right, right. So, uh, Worth, sorry to see you go. I hope uh, I hope things work out for you in the in the future. All right. So where can people find you online? Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, I write every Monday on MTG Price. I do the webcast Cartel Aristocrats. And if you enjoy playing Magic, check out Scry.Land. Find events in your local town and around the world. You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. And I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, uh, thank you again for, uh, for joining me this Friday, James, and uh, I will see you next week. Thanks, Travis. And we'll see you guys all next week for another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.